Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscape's people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on the west coast of Cumbria on a gloomy, overcast and drizzly day, rain coming in off the Irish Sea with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. The Met Office forecast suggested heavy rain and squally windiness that actually hasn't occurred exactly as yet. It looks reasonable. I think we just um, cross our fingers. That's right. And we're in the car park here, Mark, just south of Drigg, a village that many of our listeners will have driven past on the uh, road that can take you to, for example, Gosforth. It's the, it's the West Coast Road, isn't it? 595. That's the one. And Drigg dwarfed really by sea scale and of course Sellafield. Interesting name, it does mean drag, it was where they drag the boats out of the sea, it's a portage place. It was a, an important place in its time, it's just gone very quiet today, but it's a marvellous place to access the shoreline. Plenty of dog walkers here and if we turn around and look through a little gap through the sand dunes, huge diversity of sand dunes stretching down the shoreline, we can see the sea, and it's just this big skies, isn't it, Mark? Oh, yes, particularly in good conditions, you'd be able to see right across to the Isle of Man, and it's a great expanse of ocean. The foreground is fascinating. You've got a bedrock shore running out to sea. Now, the reason we're here today, Mark, links back to a little event that you attended a few weeks ago now, uh, and a very special event for those of us who love Cumbria, and who love, particularly, long-distance footpaths. Yeah, one of the first paths I ever did a guide to was the Cornish Coast Path. Beloved of generation upon generation, the coast of England is on the doorstep of a lot of people, but now new stretches are being opened up as the England Coast Path. The England Coast Path, this hugely ambitious new national trail. This will be the latest national trail to be laid down in the landscapes of this country and it will go round the whole coastline of England. Incredible project this. And we've got two guests today, Mark. The first who has been deeply involved in the creation of a particular section. Can you introduce both the guests? Yeah, Angie Harker. I met her because she really was the driving force in the launch event where all the people connected with it were gathered. Angie has been right in the thick of their process in this Cumbrian sector. And our second guest is Peter Frost Pennington from Munchester Castle, and he will tell us a good deal about Ravenglass, its Roman connections as a fishing port, and the sheltered harbour it sits amongst. So we'll get a feel for that, and of course he'll lead us up to the castle. Two guests talking about very different parts of the story here, the coast path, but also a bit about the heritage, particularly, as you say, of Ravenglass. And this being, I think today we're broadcasting, it is Halloween, we will, I hope, also finish perhaps a little tour into the castle and hear about their famous guests. I believe Muncaster Castle is considered one of the UK's most haunted castles, Mark. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, well, I'll be shivering. There we go. So let's go and do that. And is just waiting for us over by the dunes there, so uh, let's go and say hello.
listen to that sea. Waves crashing in the distance across the beach. And I've come through the marron grass of Drig Dunes. Angie Harker, what a joy. It's wonderful of you to give us your time. Where do you come from and what's your interest in the outdoors? I'm a Yorkshire lass born and bred, grew up on a farm, uh, so the outdoors has just always been part of my life. And then when this job came up, it was a great excuse to move to Cumbria and sample the landscapes around here. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know the coast as well as the lakes. You mentioned this job. We're on the coast. Is that something of a clue to the job? Just a little bit, yes. We're standing very close to the line of the England Coast Path, which is a project I've been involved with for the last six years. Its origins go back a lot further, but I've been on the Northwest team uh, since 2015, working on developing the new route of this England-wide national trail. The England Coast Path is one part of the Coastal Access umbrella and it came about through the Marine and Coastal Access Act 2009. So Coastal Access comprises of the England Coast Path, which is a waymarked national trail. It will be about 2,700 miles long and it will go around the entire coast of England. You also have, within the Coastal Access umbrella, the thing called the Coastal Margin. So this is everything roughly between the trail and the sea at mean low water. A lot of these beaches never actually had legal access on them until now. So the Coastal Margin and the trail just um, formalise that legal access so that we can all enjoy these, uh, these stunning landscapes. And why particularly are we here today, Angie? So we're right in the middle here of the Whitehaven Salkoff stretch um, of England Coast Path, which was opened earlier this year. So the way we develop the route is that um, I'm part of a northwest hub at Natural England and we split the route into stretches so that we open them bit by bit. The one we're on today opened at the end of March for local um, recreational use and we recently had a, a launch event now that the COVID restrictions have eased to celebrate the opening of this stretch a couple of weeks ago, which Mark very kindly came along to. Not kindly, I was thrilled. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> so how long is this section and what sort of terrain is it? The bit that's just been opened runs from Whitehaven to Salcroft and that's essentially the, the west coast of Cumbria. It's a good chunk of the Irish Sea section between the Solway Firth in the north and the Duddon Estuary and Morecambe Bay in the south. Salcroft is just on the, the southwestern point of Cumbria. There's a beach there much like this one, massive open expanse, very wild. Lovely place to come and watch the sunset, see the Isle of Man when it's not covered in fog like it is today. <laughs> it's very atmospheric today, as for certain. But you can see, oh, at least half a mile. <laughs> you can, yeah, yeah. And then at the northern end of this stretch, you've got Whitehaven, which is a little better known. And um, it's quite a popular walk to walk south from Whitehaven to St Bees, which is, of course, the start of the coast-to-coast -coast footpath and uh, just a very attractive seaside location in itself. Elsewhere on the route, you've got sand dunes, as we're studying now. You've got the, the fascinating skyline at Sellafield. Very sci-fi and intriguing, I think. You've got the fishing village of Ravenglass. And there's quite a lot of new access south of St Bees and also uh, between um, Ravenglass and Salcroft. So there's lots of new areas to go and explore there on the line of the National Trail. 
So these genes here, one of the reasons for coming here is that they're a good example of where we would face challenges in developing the route. So you've got um, the environmental sensitivities here. Um, this whole area of dune is a triple SI. It's a European protected site as well. So it's got a number of different levels of protection for the whole area. And it's also got a lot of protected species, individual species. Um, the famous Natterjack toad, which is an absolute staple of Cumbria's west coast. They're very rare nationally, but Cumbria has about 50% of the national population. And this area is a stronghold for them. One of the challenges we have in aligning the England coast path through a site like this is that natterjack turds like to breed in very, very shallow ponds and shallow water. And it's always just very, very tempting if you've uh, got a, a canine companion for them to jump in and have a little swim, which stirs up the silt and then suffocates the spawn. So this is just one of the challenges we have. You've also got ground nesting birds or you might have wintering birds there's been quite a few flocks down here today when I've been wandering around the beach when the tide's up you'd probably have them up in the fields as well you've also got conservation grazing up here so you've got cattle and sheep which are here to keep the the vegetation down and the invasive species down so that there's more chance for the specialist native dune species um, to come through and, and grow well here as well as the conservational challenges which have to go through very rigorous assessment processes and, and achieve sign-off for that. We also have to balance the, the needs of the walker with the needs of the, the landowners and the tenants and those people managing the land. The beach is a great place for bird life and uh, you mentioned you've seen some even before we actually got here. Yes, I've, um, I've heard the curlew bobbing around somewhere. Um, they are one of our most rapidly declining wading birds. It's really nice to hear them here. There's been plenty of gulls flying about, plenty of oyster catchers, um, just watching turnstones rummaging around in the pebbles on the, on the beach looking for food. So plenty going on here. The landscape looks barren, but there's a lot of activity when you know where to look. So could you describe to us where we're going and what's uh, the path like towards Ravenglass? We've got quite a variety heading towards Ravenglass. Um, we'll walk through a bit more of this dune land and follow it uh, slightly inland towards the Ert estuary. And at that point, uh, we'll take a little detour into Drig to get around the estuary. So we'll go through the village and then we'll head to the old Packhorse Bridge at uh, Home Bridge, have a look at that, and then we'll take some footpaths back down to Saltcoats, which is just over the Mite estuary from Ravenglass, and then we'll cross the railway bridge into the village. And the plan is also that we're going to meet Peter Frost Pennington on the Mite Bridge. So it's going to be a very entertaining walk all round. Fabulous. What a bridge. We've walked along Drig Dunes up into the village of Drig. That's the only practical way at the moment because the actual link through over the earth isn't practical lower down. Up into the village and then we followed a bridle lane and across Drig home to this wonderful home bridge. A single span sandstone bridge over the river Ert. A really handsome bridge over a broad river. Certainly at the moment it's a substantial river. It must have been an important trade route for a bridge of this substantial nature to have been constructed at this spot. So Angie, you've been working on this since 2015, that's six years. Have you a vision as to when the actual whole process for Cumbria coast paths 
might actually come to a fruition? Possibly. It's uh, not every part of it is within our control, but uh, the good news is that we have published the proposals for everything in the northwest, um, not just Cumbria. So they are now with the planning inspector in the Secretary of State to approve. We've got about 60% approved already. A good chunk of that is already open. We've got 70 miles open so far in Cumbria. It's a case of seeing how long it takes for things to go through the approval system. And as soon as that happens, the local access authorities can crack on with the works. We do have another stretch which will hopefully be opening in the next few months, which will extend um, this section of Path South from Salcroft um, around Millham and, and up into part of the Dunn Estuary. You've been working on this for this six years. You, you obviously get an affection for particular sections of the path. I think actually the whole of this stretch from Whitehaven to Salcroft is there's such a variety and there's a combination of really popular, well-loved paths and brand new access. There's some absolutely beautiful sections south of St Bees down to Nethertown and then also between Bootle and Salcroft. These are brand new areas of path which I've had the privilege to work on quite a lot over the last few years so it's just been amazing seeing those open. Another place which is particularly special to me is pretty much the whole of the Dudden Estuary and the, the Millam area. That for me is the first stretch which I worked from right from the beginning of the process right through to the end so it's an amazing place the scenery is spectacular Millham is a place which doesn't always get the best reviews but if you go and stand by the old ironworks site and look up the estuary to the mountains it's like being on a Scottish island sometimes looking up across the sands that whole stretch of coast when it opens I think will be a a really special moment for me. When we were with David Cooper doing our episode on Norman Nicholson, we actually stood on the ironwork site and we looked at that view and it was beautiful. Absolutely wonderful estuary. I can understand people warming to that when that becomes available. This is one of those unusual walks where we've indulged your expertise and uh, we have to say farewell at this point because we're going to meet Peter Frost Pennington as we approach Ravenglass. So we're going to skip forward a little bit on our own but uh, what a lovely spot to have reached anyway, this crossing of the Urt. Thank you very much for giving your time, Angie. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to join you and enjoy the rest of your walk. The breeze is cutting sharply across the bay. As I cross the river Might over a bridge beside the railway, and here's a train just going by. Guess it, never alone on the railway. And uh, we've said goodbye to Ange, and I'm now in the company of Peter Frost Pennington from Munkester Castle. It's great to see you, Peter. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, welcome to Ravenglass in the parish of Munkester, Mark. We've just crossed the River Mite, and that's the boundary between the parish of Drake and the parish of Munkester. So here we are in the centre of the universe to me, and I'm Peter Frost Pennington. I'm uh, a proud Scot who's travelled south, thought I'd be here for a couple of years uh, south of the border, fell in love in more ways than one, both with the place and the young lady, and I've been here ever since, well over 30 years now. Uh, So I'm not quite a local, but I've married into the Pennington family and the Pennington family have been landowners and lived here for well over 800 years so we've been inhabiting Munster Castle since at least 1208 if not before 
but really we're relatively jolly newcomers because uh, we're looking out <laughs> through a bit of uh, murk and gloom. Uh, we can't see the Isle of Man today, but out way beyond there, we're now looking at the southern tip of Drig Dunes and the northern tip of Esmeel's Dunes, and it's a, a, a very unique sort of environment, a double sand spit, and, and all the geologists and naturalists get very excited about this. So the Romans came here in uh, long before us Penningtons. In 79 AD, I think, Agricola sailed in with his Roman uh, navy, and this makes a perfect natural harbour for them. Obviously, they weren't big ships then, but they could easily beach across on the sands and be nice and secure. The sand spit protecting them from the, the really stormy sea, uh, and they were safe in here. We're at a very unique place along the coast because this is the Ravenglass Estuary. And so we're standing above the River Mite, and three rivers drain into the estuary here. Uh, we have to the north the River Urt, we're standing above the River Mite, and to the south, uh, the River Esk. And they form this great natural harbour. We're here at high tide, <laughs> so it looks fun. We once had some Americans stay, and they came back in a panic and said, turn the TV on, what's, what's happening in the news? Something major's happened. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, we're in Ravenglass in this morning getting our newspaper. We went back this afternoon, and all the water's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought some major catastrophe happened because they came from central United States somewhere and didn't have a clue about tides and things. So um, one of the problems which we're dealing with today, you know, walking down the coast is marvellous, but you have to get over the rivers. Around Munkester, it's where the mountains tumble into the sea and there's a whole load of boggy estuaries with wide rivers and, and, uh, and that's before you get to the Dudden and places like that. You're now entering two World Heritage Sites because... Uh, the Lake District National Park a few years ago got designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site for its cultural heritage, I think they call it. But long before that, Roman frontiers, the, the Hadrianic frontier, starts here in Ravenglass. So as I understand it, when Hadrian drew his line across the map and said, my empire ends here, it was his line in the sand. Although there's no wall from Ravenglass up the coast to Bonus on Solway, there's a Roman mile fort that every mile from here across north of England, all through northern Europe, down to Damascus or wherever it, it ends. Mm. And the Hadrianic Front has been seen as a World Heritage Site since the 1980s, I think. So there are very few places in the world where you can be in two World Heritage Sites at once. So, I mean, even on a day like this, it's a bit uh, dreek, as we'd say in Scotland, but it's still got a certain beauty. It's, and it's a charismatic coast. It's a charismatic coast, definitely, as well as being an energy coast and various other epithets we get. And it's an industrial coast. You know, this is uh, fishermen and coal and importing guano and all sorts of things and for fertiliser. So it's an industrial site. And, and the more recent generation, of course, all along the Cumbrian coast, little munitions factories and things like that. Here comes another train, the, the lifeblood of this part of the world. love our little coastal railway. Uh, it's very important, particularly in the, as we're climate change, we're trying to encourage more and more people to come and visit this coast by railway. And, and what better now, we've got the English coastal path, um, they come by train and you can walk on a bit and if you get tired we'll just jump on, on the next station down. Well that was fascinating Peter. We'll move on a little bit further and get to the village street of Ravenglass. Lovely coming down the main street, the main drag in Ravenglass, as it were. It's uh, very distinctive. To the right, on the northern flank, a line of cottages. And on the left, far more substantial buildings, maybe agricultural in their origins, but 
They all face one another, create a lovely parade. And we've come to a critical spot on the ground. Where are we, Peter? Well, we're really in the heart of Ravenglass here. We're standing on the site of the original Market Cross that stood here for many, many centuries, if not possibly millennia. Uh, I think it had to be taken down in the 1960s and 70s because the roads people thought it caused a bit of an obstruction for the cars. But here we are in the core and the heart of the village. This is a medieval village and it's still a medieval village. And if you look, it's this beautiful sort of curved bow shape and it's narrow at both ends because this was the main road. This was the motorway north-south. The ends are narrow so you could hold markets here. So there were gates at each end. There's still a gate at the uh, western end because sometimes the tide gets a little bit high and we have to shut the gate to make sure the whole place doesn't flood. Um, but there would have originally been gates so when they held markets they could drive cattle, sheep, horses into here, close the gates at each end and everything was secure and then do the horse trading and selling that went on. Of course what, what you were doing if you were walking, the first thing you, you want, you want some refreshment. So at each end where it narrows there are pubs and still today there's the Pennington Hotel at the, that end which is uh, very close to my heart and at the other end used to be the, the Bay Horse and the Ship Inn and even though they're now private properties or the Bay Horse was doing bed and breakfast for quite some time very successfully, uh, Ship Inn still has where the pub signs were so the first place you got to was the pub <laughs> to get a drink and refresh yourself. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to some of the old times when I came here over 30 years ago a chap called Jack Holman who, who grew up here and he used to be six pubs in this place and lots of shops because of course every community had to be self-sufficient and if you look carefully there are archways so, so where there's an archway that would have been a coach house behind you if you were traveling by stagecoach you drive your horses in there to the backyard and there'd be rooms up above so it's a very hospitable place and and still is you allude to this being the main road to north and south how did that operate well, in the days before motorised transport or the railways, you'd have to travel by horseback, by stagecoach, or by Shanks's pony. And the easiest way to travel was up and down the coast. There'd be ferries across the estuaries, or you'd just get your feet wet. And it was much easier walking along the coast and having to go through all those high passes and through the hills. The communications, you know, way, way back, centuries and centuries ago, the country was more or less orientated east coast and west coast and it still has some similarities today that if you think the west coast mainland and the east coast mainland one of the main problems we have in the country is linking across the Pennines and all the high hills to get from one coast to the other and of course the east coast would be trading with Europe and then low countries and Belgium and Scandinavia um, this coast would be trading with Ireland and the Isle of Man and Cornwall and Scotland Brittany and, and, and France it was much easier to move by sea or by foot up and down the coast and indeed this market cross there will have been a market charter that went with this. Yes, Ravenglass was granted its market charter by King John, uh, the licence to hold markets and sell things in 1208. And at around the same time, Liverpool was similarly granted a market charter. And at that time, Ravenglass was a bigger and far more important port. It was the second largest port on the west coast of Britain in the time of the Romans, second only to Chester. So in 1208, Liverpool was just a muddy creek on the Mersey. And uh, I'm quite pleased that Ravenglass has more or less not changed since 1208. <laughs> and Liverpool, of course, had the much better depth of river and anchorage. So as ships grew bigger, Ravenglass faded away and uh, we're not the industrial city that uh, Liverpool is. But if our river was deeper and bigger, this might have been Liverpool and that might have been Ravenglass. But this one's still got two World Heritage sites, but Liverpool... Well, <laughs> maybe not better go there. We've got lots of friends in Liverpool.
Well, we've come through the sea gate at the western end of the village street and we've come down the ramp onto the pure and uh, although the tide is in, it's actually probably not as in as it could be. It allows us to get properly onto the sandy, gravelly shore. And uh, from here, you get a, a view to the south, towards Black Coombe, although the upper half of the mountain is shrouded. Elsewhere, the cloud is such that you can't really comprehend the mountains of the Lake District. But it's a great spot for somebody like Peter to <laughs> explain how this sheltered bay was used in history. Well, Mark, we're looking out towards the Irish Sea and you can see the breakers just coming over the sandbar there. And it's a very sort of narrow entrance, but it's a, quite a deep and safe entrance if you, if you get the route right, otherwise you get grounded. But once you're through those sandbars made by the, the double sandbar of Drig Dunes uh, to the north and Esmules Dunes to the south, you're in actually quite a sheltered bay. And I would describe this as a beach. And you beached your boats, yes. And, and there's still we've got a couple of commercial boats sitting out there, people who do a little bit of fishing, bobbing around. We've got a, a couple of leisure boats further up the, the rivers in, in a bit more sheltered. But if you were the Romans or the prehistoric people or, or even up to, to probably the 16th, 17th or 18th centuries, boats were fairly small. You'd bring your boats in and just beach them. And, and of course, many of the fishing boats. And where, if we look back to the village, this is the classic view you often see on postcards and calendars of Ravenglass and on the landward side when we were at the Market Cross all those houses tended to be farmers and, and they all had little crofts of land and they ran out to what we'll be on shortly which is now called Walls Drive but was Croftlands Drive as that was the end of their little strips of land that attached to each house. On the seaward side of course they didn't have lands so they couldn't be farmers so what were they? Well they were fishermen or smugglers. <laughs> and we're looking now, and you can still see on the seaward side, there's an old anchor there, and there's uh, all the posts and the lines still there where people used to hang and dry their nets or repair their nets. And now, occasionally, people might want to hang their washing on them, put your smalls up there, and they dry very quickly in this brisk breeze. And you can see that the way these houses, are, they're, they're protected, uh, <laughs> the ramparts against the waves. Because, as you say, this isn't... By any means, the highest tide you get in Ravenglass, and I've quite often seen those gates shut and the waves crashing, sometimes just a bit of a splash over, quite, over the waves. Quite formidable to defend properties. That must have been renewed and renewed over the years. Oh, many years, and you can see they're all kind of hunkered down, but the, the people who live in those cottages, well, there are pluses and minuses. They have the most fabulous views out to sea, and uh, the weather is often really good here, because, of course, we get great weather here, uh, and I can guarantee we're standing here. It's a little bit drizzly, but it's actually still now I can guarantee at the top end of Estelle they'll be chucking it down. The weather gets to us and goes over us and gets pushed up by the mountains and drops it on the central lake so it's always pretty good in the west. When it's you, when it's you a come. rain shadow here. It's a rain shadow and it's liquid sunshine. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to see uh, Ravenglass in its historic perspective. Trade and fishing and quite small-scale activity that goes back in time. Can you quantify what was handled here? The Romans came here because it made a safe haven. This was their main supply route into the north of England. So they'd be bringing amphoras of oil and probably socks for the poor <laughs> legionnaires who were up on Hard Knot Pass and finding that it was a bit cold just wearing sandals, so they were, were socks and things like that, and wine. And they'd be taking out, out the minerals because it's high-quality minerals from up Estelle and in the Lakeland Hills. And, of course, the other things, very much fishing, um, but also salt. You know, salt coats is just to the north side, and salt was a very important and valuable commodity and all 
all the way up the coast, uh, anywhere with salt in its name, like salt coats, they'd be evaporating salt and, and producing high-quality salt and exporting Preser- that. Preserving the meat. Yeah, no refrigeration in those days, so you'd have to smoke it or salt it and salted barrels of fish and all that kind of thing. So it was a focus and, and, and an area where trade went on and it'd have to be two-way, so the Romans would be bringing in their, their olive oil and their socks and their wine and taking out minerals and salt, perhaps. In prehistoric times, the people would have scooted up and down the coast in their little dugout canoes or coracles, a bit of walking, a bit of uh, paddling across the rivers. The axes, when they got them from off the Schoolfells and Langdale, they brought them down here to polish on the sand. And that's fascinating that uh, the Langdale Axe Factory is not too far away. And of course, uh, particularly on a day like this, you wouldn't want to be high in the mountains there finishing them off. So they bring the rough hewn axes down to the coast. And all along here were little pockets where they would finish them off and polish them. And they'd be sort of sheltering here. And, and obviously you could eat the fish and collect mussels and shell fish and things like that. And then when they were fully polished, you could export them. And rather than packing them in big heavy sacks and putting them on mules or carry them over the high hills, it's much easier to put them on a boat and float serenely, hopefully, maybe raise a sail and float north or south down the coast. And they've been, in fact, quite a few of them, I think, ended up in East Anglia, you know, and and even as far as Gaul. That was quite interesting, Peter, coming along that shore. The pebbles have a slickness to them that makes them feel as if they're oiled. Uh, I can look back now, I can see Sellafield, uh, and uh, immediately beside us, the Roman port. It's been defended quite recently by stonework to stop it from eroding naturally. But my eyes are tantalised by two posts in the water. What do they betray? Well, this is, uh, again, a very important historic place. We're standing at the, at the corner of the Roman fort. This was a major, major Roman port, a major supply route in. And, you know, uh, 1900 years ago, the, this would be a bustling place with loads of ships coming from all over the world. A few years ago was found what was known as the Ravenglass Diploma on the beach, which was basically the discharge papers for a legionnaire from Syria... He'd done 20 years service in the Roman army. He'd fallen in love with someone, a local, and wanted to be discharged and and start living here. But to answer your question about those weird-looking posts, the the tide is receding. It's still quite high tide, so we can see very few of them, but two of them are coming. And this is the fishing engine. This is known as a salmon garth. Very, very ancient way of catching fish. But in the estuaries, they'd put posts and wickerwork in between and and make V-shaped channels in in the estuary so this is the first outlier that directs the fish into the center of the estuary so they get funneled into this V and at low tide you close the gate and you wait for the tide to come up and go down again and then you come back the next low tide and you what's calling drawing the garth so you get your fishing nets out and you draw the garth and my um, dear wife who was here for many years on holiday when, when her grandfather lived at Munkester they'd come and help them draw the garth very few of these if any of these are still in existence around the country but without going out to sea you could harvest a lot of fish in fact as you probably know, many estates, one of the contracts of employment for the workers was they could only have salmon
salmon six days a week because they were fed up of being fed salmon all the time because it was so common because the rivers were teeming with fish and it's much easier just to go out and draw the garth or the fishing engine once or twice a day. You can only have so much caviar, well, can't you? I mean, <laughs> and it was the same. You know, my wife was a child. They had white bait. They had salmon all the time. And um, sometimes they wanted uh, vegetables or a bit of meat, perhaps. <laughs> and, and this was being drawn right up into the 1980s and then issues with the river licences and, and, and the depletion of the f- salmon stocks and things. But what we're hoping to do is actually restore this. And we'd love it to be a community project. I don't know if we'll ever manage it. And we've been talking so long, uh, you can see the next two posts of the gas <laughs> starting to appear. You, you can Fish. see, because it is important, we talked earlier about the communication, what they were taking in and out of the port here. And you can see how quickly the time tide is really scooting out and it's flowing very quickly the river but if you're here at the tide turning and coming in you could do what's called a float up the romans would have flat bottom barges or you can do it today if you come along with a kayak and sit here just to the tide turns and you'll be swept way up the river esque without having to put paddle a paddle all. in the water Amazing. just to maybe steer way up beyond Munkester bridge so the romans were able to to move their flat bottom barges way up the river towards Hard Knot Pass and, and the top end of Estale, bring the minerals out a bit of a distance down the hill, load them on the barges there and export them down to here where they'll be load, loaded onto bigger ships and boats to be taken out to the sea and back to Rome or Gaul or over the Isle of Man or trading with Ireland or whatever. Now we'll go through under the railway, escape the shore and find our way towards the Roman bathhouse. This is absolutely riveting. I love coming to Glanaventa, which is a plain field to all attention. But if you turn your eyes to the right, as you're coming along the open track, you see these tall walls with arches. And would you believe it? It's a Roman bathhouse. And it's the tallest Roman walls in Northern England. It's a remarkable survival. This was probably the most important part of the fort because this was a social club. You went to the baths to catch up on all the gossip and obviously uh, keep your hygiene levels up. Isn't it fascinating? There was the frigidarium and the coldarium and now it's getting very trendy to go uh, <laughs> cold water swimming or cold showers again. So the Romans this probably had it right long before we realised that it's good for the health. It's a real spa. Yeah, it's a real spa. So this was a social centre of the fort and we're looking beyond that to the fort base and I suspect uh, I'm no expert but I, I've been saying it for some time, this place has always been looked after and cared for for many millennia and it is the highest freestanding walls. The walls haven't been stolen for building projects and I think it's because the Pennington family would have originally lived here. It's, it's a very pleasant situation. It's not too far away from the sea to jump in your boat and commute to wherever you wanted to go. Um, you've got the walls, what we call walls meadow and they thought this was a, the early historians thought this was a Roman villa. Well it probably was a villa but where the Penningtons took over, and it was the bathhouse with all the hypercourse underneath to heat, heat the water. So my suspicion is that the Penningtons lived here till the Anglo-Scots war started, with me being Scottish, Boo Hiss, Edward Longshanks, the hammer of the Scots, when he started going up into the 1290s and beating the Scots up, and, and then Edward II got his comeuppance with Robert the Bruce and all that. There was English raids over the border, and the Scottish raids came back. So I think in 1315, after Bannockburn, the Black Douglas came rampaging down the coast, burning... Dalton Castle, Negrament Castle, attacking that. And in 1322, I think the Bruce came down and, and the Great Raid of 1322. So 
if your house was a nice little seaside villa, you couldn't really defend it very well, so I think then the Penningtons moved to a more defendable spot, possibly taking over an ancient Roman watchtower that was up there, guarding approaches from inland to the fort, and built their peel town to protect themselves. But they would make sure that the ancestral family home was not mucked around with, and nobody was to nick the stone from it, and revered it, as we still do today, and try and look after it as best we can. And I think it's fascinating if you come here. They've still got the plasterwork on the walls. It's just got this wonderful ancient feel of it. And this is, uh, you know, almost 1900 years old. Could you tell me a little bit about this wonderful graphic you've got on here, Peter? Uh, Can you describe what that fort is all about and the civil settlement adjacent? There was a cohort, which about 160 troops were stationed here, which is an awful lot, (laughs) so maybe there's a lot going on here. But we did manage to do a little community project a few years ago in in partnership with the Lake District National Park, because what we were wanting to do was discover whether there was a vicus, and that was pretty clear there would be, because any large fort always had a a village or a, a settlement next to it, and we certainly have confirmed that because we did a project over two summers put three or four trenches in and confirmed yes there's an awful lot going on in this farmland beyond Uh, there is a display case um, in the Pennington Hotel that anyone can go to some of the finds from this and we found you know this certainly was industrial areas they were producing things and beautiful jewelry and lots of Roman pottery and of course we find loads and loads of their roof tiles that come off the buildings and and I hope in my lifetime uh, however long I'm spared we will be able to raise some funding or grant aid to do more uh, but if not, we'll just look after it to the best of our ability and as technology improves. So, so I'm pretty sure the importance of raven glass in the history of, of this part of the world will get stronger and stronger because you know, they've done great things at Maryport and other places and lots more excavations going on. And I think this is just a treasure trove uh, waiting to be properly researched. I want to head up now towards the castle. We backtrack well, a little. Well, we, we'll go up through what's called decoy wood and we'll get into the woodland and start climbing. Brilliant. Well, we've left the information building and uh, followed the drive down into the gardens, which is a a remarkable setting, uh, an arboretum of such diversity. And we've moved off to one side down a path that has been developed for families. And just at the moment, the theme is Halloween. So there's a lot of spidery spookiness going on down there, which is rather exciting. And we're heading towards the castle, but the key thing is the amazing rhododendrons, Peter. We're now developing the autumn colours and we have that wonderful tapestry of greenery of all sorts of different hues and colours because, of course, rhododendrons must have been so exciting uh, if you lived in the 19th century or earlier than that because suddenly the only evergreens we had in this country were things like yew or privet or holly and then they started bringing back these amazing exotic blooms and the, from the Himalayas, from the Him- Himalayas and, and, and so here you could be standing, this is very similar I'm told by the experts, to being in Sheshuan in China or on the foothills of Tibet and we have these towering pines soaring above us, we have stands of bamboo and uh, these amazing wonderful plants, rhododendrons. Have you a sort of a, a log, a historical record when they started bringing rhododendrons here? 
Well, we have some of the earliest introductions, and I think it was Joseph Hooker who was the first plant hunter who started to, to bring rhododendron across. And it really reached its zenith in the 1920s and 30s when great-grandfather was here. And he subscribed to many of the great plant hunting expeditions. And remember, China was a very exotic place, and uh, there were people like Ludlow and Sheriff and, and Chinese Wilson, and, you know, under some Douglas firs. And, and Douglas was a, a young Scottish botanist who uh, went to Canada and brought back some amazing trees. And, and then we got some Douglas firs towering above us. And it must have been so exciting, this rich diversity of plants suddenly coming into this country and gardening, just going, woomph. The Cornish gardens did their best before the First World War when tin was at its height and then it went into decline. The Scottish gardens tended to be at their best between the wars when shipbuilding on the Clyde was developing lots of money. Monkster's kind of gone on and on. Um, peaks and troughs, but has managed to sustain that over many uh, years from the early 19th century right up to today. We were, had plant hunters going into Tibet and China in the 1980s and 90s and we're still swapping plants now. But when the experts do come here, there are apparently around 800 species of rhododendron. And rhododendrons get a bad name because rhododendron ponticum does escape and cause major invasive issues. And there are lots of invasive plants that maybe the Victorians shouldn't have introduced. But the, the beautiful, rare, valuable rhododendrons, they started crossing them, Victorians, and swapping them to make bigger blooms and different colours. And there are thousands of hybrids. And uh, we have a great collection, and certainly in the 1930s and 40s, I think this was the biggest collection of species rhododendron anywhere in Europe. We're not so good on the rhododendrons now, but we're benefiting from the foresight of past generations because they're glorious. I might not be able to name them all or very few of them, but I can still appreciate them. And we love going around when the experts come and they spend hours turning over leaves and arguing whether it's a Cinebrine of our royal eye or something else. Well, that was a lovely walk through the gardens there, and we passed by a display with a lady with a lure guiding a hawk. Birds of prey in close quarters flying through the air. Now you brought me into this amazing castle. I've never been in Muncaster. It's such an atmospheric building. Beautiful architecture on the outside, but inside. Now that's another story. It's wonderful to finish in the family home, and this primarily is our family home. It's not a museum, we do live here, and many people live and work here and do research here. It's a very friendly place. It's strange because we have this epithet of being one of the most haunted castles in the kingdom. Perhaps after dark it gets a bit creepy. Here we are standing in front of this magnificent portrait of Thomas Skelton. Now, Skelton isn't a very common name. It is more common in Cumbria, certainly a Cumbrian name. And this is, some people thought, the original Tom Fool, or the man who gave tomfoolery to the English language. Some say he was a friend of Shakespeare, perhaps he was a bit later than Shakespeare, but often a father and son did the same job. So there's a tradition of tomfoolery here. But Tom was a fool here. He was actually very much involved with the English coastal path because the castle is sat on the hill guarding the fords over the rivers and down the estuaries. And if you came and asked a question of Tom heading south, wanting to cross the River Esk, if you were polite to him, um, because he was a servant, so sometimes people were very dismissive of people they saw as being below their station. Now, my good man, which way do I go? You know, if, he, if he didn't treat him with respect, he would send you to the quicksands rather than the safe crossing. And the role of the fool in society throughout you know, history was to prick pomposity and make us realise we're all human, we're all in it together, and you've just got to be polite and kind to people. And if you are, 
he will send you to the correct crossing. Tom, so they say, is, is one of our ghosts. We have three, and as my father-in-law used to say, we're working on the fourth because they're so good for business. So remember, we are in the entertainment trade. All we do is repeat the stories, and there's so many stories from the past, and we'd leave you to make up your own mind. So many people do believe in ghosts, and this place, some people come here and tell me all sorts of incredible things that they feel presences, and other people, of course, many of us today don't believe in ghosts at all. But whatever you believe in or not believe in, it has a, a fascinating atmosphere, and it's very quiet. When we turn the lights out, it's very dark. And until we had our solar panels and ground source heating, it was very, very cold. And these are three things we don't experience in day life. Our, our lives are full of noise and everyone has music. People, most people live in towns and cities. There are street lights everywhere. You never get darkness. People don't like being cold anymore. And we certainly don't have quiet in our lives. So I think the atmosphere, we bring you into this atmosphere, turn the lights out, it's nice and cold, uh, and it's very dark. Your imagination goes over time. Tom was one of your mysterious components. You were mentioning there are other, let's say, ghostly influences in here. Can you lead me to another? Certainly. Uh, and if you come this way, we'll go into the core of the haunted happenings at Manchester. So we'll just come into this funny little green room here. And you walk in, in fact, straight away. It's strange, it feels colder, doesn't it? it yes. And, and the, the walls are painted this very odd kind of turquoisey blue. It's hung with these ancient Flemish tapestries um, full of big, heavy, old oak furniture. Mm. The room's dominated also by a huge fireplace, which was brought from a different house, and this rather puts the room out of kilter. There are devil's heads on the fire dogs. If you think how many people have lived, been born, lived their lives and died here, in this room in particular, there's a crying child, who we think are photographs by the bed, a little girl called Margaret Susan Elizabeth Pennington, and she was, had inherited the castle, she was the only child of the fourth Lord Munchester, but unfortunately died age 11, supposedly of screaming fits. And some people, we, we had to stop using this bedroom for our guests because people were often disturbed, and one lady who was here said she could bear it when the child was crying, but when the ghostly nurse started singing to the child to try and calm it down, she was out of here and she couldn't spend the rest of the night here. Well, as you can tell, I can go on for days. But let's go and finish our journey looking at the view and looking further south down the English coastal path. Architecturally, it's amazing on the outside. We've just enjoy the interior and actually the outlook from the castle is remarkable as well. The cloud is clinging over Woodend Heights and Stainton Pike but I can see Heart of Fell. Well there you are, it is there. So uh, Upper Estelle is all there to be seen and Munchester Fell flanking to the north of the Esk. All our attention now has been on the whole spirit of Munchester and Peter, what does Munchester mean to you? Well, Munster is a very special place. It's the centre of my universe, and I'd love more people to come and enjoy this fabulous setting, because even though nothing was here, if there's no castle, no gardens, no bird of prey centre, just look at that view. And Ruskin summed it up when he came, probably for afternoon tea in the 19th century, and wrote a thank you letter afterwards saying, the view is the gateway to paradise. So you're not quite in heaven, but you're almost there. And even today, you know, it doesn't matter. that Normally we can see Scarfell Pike, England's highest mountain way over uh, in the east there, and Crinkle Crags and 
all around. But as we approach Halloween, I quite like the fact it's all wreathed in mist and uh, it's, mellow, it's, it's, fruitfulness. mellow fruitfulness, as, as Keats would say. We love it, but it's about people. And it's not just about us funny old folk who live in the castle. Uh, we love sharing it with people and we give enjoyment to people. Boy, it's been wonderful having you with us on this walk. It's been a wonderful experience wandering along the coast and arriving at this grand establishment, which is just on the heaven's door. Journey's end, and we've wandered down from Moncaster Castle back to Ravenglass, looking out over the estuary there, Mark, and the um, sea slowly going out now. Uh, we're approaching low tide, I think, but been a, a fascinating wander, learning about everything from the laying down and this process of putting a new route together. Very complicated getting all these partners on board, but also getting a lovely taste for some of the history and heritage of this incredible village. It's interesting when you've got these two people, one who's had to go through all these procedures and processes. It might seem dry to the outside, but, but actually this is cutting-edge stuff that really ensures access for the future. And Peter brought in his own perspective. He's a showman. He loves his topic area. He's become a, a thoroughgoing Pennington. The family have been a part and parcel of the heritage of this area for centuries, and they sustain that continuity. Um, was there anything that interested you in particularly, Mark, in, in Ravenglass? Or what, a, what a great little village that Always is. Always fascinating. I, I love the counterpoint of the fishermen's houses on one side yes. of the street and the farming and the land tillers on the facing side. Uh, and the way the street was narrowed at either end so that they could turn it into a marketplace yeah. and hold livestock. Wow. Nice to be reminded that, of course, that historic route just carried on down through the estuaries, didn't mm. it? So this yeah. was just the last, really, in a series of crossing points. And the interesting thing, of course, Peter mentioned that Ravenglass was contemporary with the market charter of Liverpool. Yeah. People see Liverpool as a great city, a great port that played into the empire, whereas this one, Ravenglass, played into the Roman Empire. Very good point, yeah, yeah. We obviously nearly ended in the uh, bedroom of Tom Fool. Yes. Did you feel any strange presences at all? Uh, yeah, well, it was definitely cooler. It was. But there bit, again, we've been walking a long time in the rain. <laughs> I was. Uh, you cynic. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of atmosphere. That's absolutely true. And it's beautifully presented. There we go. Usual housekeeping. If you like what we do, there are 66 previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can also buy some of our books there, which help support us financially. Uh, we're on social media, Mark. Yeah, Facebook and Twitter, Countrystride One. We don't know quite what we're doing yet. The weather at this time of year is playing havoc with our schedule. We're going to try and get up onto Blencathra at some point, I believe. And I think we were going to talk about climate change in its uh, reference to Cumbria um, with a, a visit over into the Eden Valley as well, potentially. But for now, for today, and from a very cold and increasingly rainy Ravenglass, we're saying goodbye for now.